Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast, and I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Shelley Jane. Dr. Jane is a psychiatrist, PTSD specialist, and trauma scientist. Dr. Jane is also the author of The Unspeakable Mind. This book stands as the definitive guide to PTSD and offers lasting hope to sufferers, their loved ones, and healthcare providers everywhere. Why should you care about this now? Well, because we're in the middle of a global health crisis and many people will experience trauma, whether it be related to health, finances, death, isolation, or something else. In my conversation with Dr. Jane, she offers clarity about what PTSD actually is, how it manifests in our lives, and what we can be doing right now while in quarantine to prevent it. Most of all, she offers a semblance of hope. There is a light at the end of this tunnel, she says. So please share this conversation far and wide with those who could use it most. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you Dr. Shelley Jane. Dr. Jane, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Good. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, what essentially brought your work onto my radar was you wrote a book called The Unspeakable Mind. And I'd like to get into that. But what I want to do is I'd like to ask you, what exactly is it that you do? How do you introduce yourself? So I'm a physician. I'm a psychiatrist who specializes in the treatment of mental health disorders, particularly in post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm also a trauma scientist affiliated with the National Center for PTSD. So I study PTSD and try and figure out ways to advance the science of PTSD. Mm -hmm. As it pertains to your book, The Unspeakable Mind, how did you come to name your book? So, you know, a lot of times what happens when human beings are faced with a really traumatic event the memories of that event, they become unspeakable. You know, a lot of times when someone's faced with a major trauma, especially a human-made trauma, it really rocks us to the core. It really assaults our sense of what is right and wrong and our kind of worldview. And so a lot of times the memories and the thoughts associated with that trauma become unspeakable. You know, we don't want to think about Mm. it. Unspeakable or Mm. unthinkable. The problem is a lot of times when these traumatic thoughts and memories, when they remain unspeakable or unthinkable, they become these stuck points that inhibit Mm. that human being from recovering from the trauma, from dealing with the trauma. And so making the unspeakable speakable is a really big part of recovery from trauma. Now, what I really love about your book is that you make it really accessible. You essentially bring your personal narrative into the findings that you have in your book. And and one thing that you talk about is your life in the context of your heritage. Mm-hmm. Can you unpack your lineage in the sense of who your father was and who your grandfather was and how that kind of set you on the path of being deeply curious about the human mind, mental health, and putting you on this path of psychiatry? Yeah, so, you know, I I feel like we all have stories in our lives that connect us to why we do what we do. You know, I I feel very fortunate. I'm very passionate about what I do. I feel really blessed to have the kind of job and the career that I do. And I think a lot of times we do have personal reasons that keep us connected to this work, but I don't think those stories necessarily come out sequentially, you know? I don't think life Mm, is neat like that. Sometimes it takes you a while to understand why you are where you are in your life. And for me, you know, I was a, a psychiatrist in private practice in Milwaukee and Wisconsin. 12 years ago, I was living in Wisconsin and I was settled in private practice. And then 
Uh, my parents were visiting from England, where I was born and raised, and we took a road trip around the United States to celebrate my dad's 70th birthday. And on that road trip, he started talking about his upbringing. He's from India. He was born and raised in India. And when he was 10, that was the year 1947, uh, which your listeners might be familiar with, was the year of, of the partition of British India into India and Pakistan. Yeah. And I'd always known this story, like I'd always known that my dad had been orphaned in partition. I'd always known that my paternal grandfather had been murdered. I'd always known that my dad was forced to flee and be a refugee and work as a child laborer. Like I'd known the nuts and bolts of the story, but there was something about the way he told it to me on that road trip in 2007 which made me just take in that story in a totally different way. By that time, he was the sole surviving member of his family of origin. And mm. I recognized what he was giving me because by that time I was a psychiatrist. He was giving me testimony, you know. Okay. And I recognized testimony because patients give you testimony all the time. They tell you their deepest, darkest secrets. They tell you their worst fears. They tell you things that they've never told anyone else before. And the thing with testimony is it's beyond a casual narration. It's very intentional and it requires the listener to take some action. Mm -hmm. So I feel like when he told me that story, it really changed the course of my life because I started thinking about, well, why did I become a psychiatrist? And this story had always been percolated in the background of my life. You know, I was born and raised in England. I was separated in geography mm -hmm. and time from India. And that happens a lot with people, families who have got trauma histories. You know, when you get dislocated, when you get displaced, sometimes that narrative mm -hmm. is interrupted. But you kind of have to go back and make that narration cohesive if you want to kind of recover from that horrible trauma. And so at that point, I decided I wanted to commit the rest of my career to helping people who had survived trauma and to understanding post-traumatic stress disorder. Because all along, I had been from those people, right? Those were my people. And right. I think that the penny kind of dropped there and it made sense. And so then, you know, fast forward 12 years later, that's pretty much what I do every day. Oh, that's a fascinating story. So this intimate conversation that you had with your father driving across the country in the United States, this conversation was a transformational experience between you and him that kind of led you on this path of doing what you're doing now. Is that correct? Yeah, no, definitely. Because, you know, up until that point, I was an immigrant to the United States. It's kind of hard being an outsider anyway, you know, your credentials, you have to really kind of jump through a lot of hoops to be kind of accepted and you have to really earn your dues. And I was settled. I thought I was done. You know, I was in private practice in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I had a really comfortable life. And I feel like I at that point, I'd worked really hard and, and I kind of wanted to enjoy the fruits of my labor. But being an academic, being a scientist, you know, working with trauma survivors, there's a lot of challenges inherent in all of those things. Right. And the odds, you know, for success are really stacked against you. They really are. Right? I mean, I can't tell you how hard it is to be successful in those types of endeavors. And I think before I, the road trip, I didn't really have the belief or the conviction that that was a path that I wanted to take. But I think after the road mm. trip, it really helped me have this kind of renewed connection mm. to why I became a doctor in the first place, why I became a psychiatrist in the first place. And it kind of gave me this renewed stamina or grit to kind of see it through that I was going to be successful at this. And it was really important that I was successful at this because in essence, when we talk about trauma and PTSD, you know, we tell the stories of people who never really got a chance to tell their story. You know, right. a lot of people who throughout the centuries have lived in, 
anonymity and suffered in silence. So I think I just got reconnected to my mission in a way that was really had just not been there in my career before or with a certain clarity that hadn't been there before. And that was invaluable because it was not easy. Moving to California, starting over again, it was not easy, but, but I needed that connection to kind of make that transformation. I think that's a wonderful story. It's really nice to have those euphoric moments where you realize what you're kind of here to do <laughs> and pursuing questions like why really get you down on that path, right? And that's what you're telling us. And so mm-hmm. what I would love to know is, And in the context of your book, Dr. Jane, is you talk about really scientific things, but from a humanist perspective, how and why did you do that? Was there like an overall objective that you had doing it that way? So to me, communication to lay audiences, educated lay audiences, is just a passion of mine. You know, I grew up as an immigrant kid. Mm. I didn't come from a family of doctors. I feel like I've spent my whole life shuttling between different groups, trying to explain one group to the other, you know? I mean, a lot of immigrants have that experience. So I feel like kind of being an outsider, kind of seeing things other people don't see and then kind of translating. I feel like I've spent my whole life doing that. And if you look at the field of PTSD in the last 20 years, since the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, since things like Hurricane Katrina, since 9-11, there has been an exponential growth in the science of PTSD. We know so much more about this condition, Mm. way more than we ever knew when I was starting out as a medical student. And I think if you're in the field, you're kind of aware of that and you take advantage of that. But it was so clear to me that your regular everyday people, your regular educated people were not aware of those advances. Mm-hmm. And the goal of me writing the book, The Unspeakable Mind, is that I really wanted to take that knowledge and present it to a broader audience in a language that was understandable. Because, you know, let's face it, talking about trauma and PTSD is not easy, you know. Correct. But presenting it in a way that would hopefully illuminate PTSD, that would hopefully advance the conversation. Because the reality is, is PTSD is an inextricable part of all of our lives. You know, people tend to think of the soldier back from war, but it goes way beyond that. The odds are you, everybody who's listening to this podcast, your lives have been touched by someone who has PTSD. You probably love someone who has it, but you may not know it because it's kind of invisible wounds, right? So that was my goal to really get out to a broader audience to understand what it is we who are on the inside know, but, you know, to get it out to a broader audience. So let's say somebody comes in to your office. How would you kind of diagnose them? What are some of the questions that you would ask? Just help us better understand what this whole process is like. Sure. You know, so typically there's a history of someone having survived a major trauma. And, you know, if you think about it, combat exposure, being a civilian survivor of war, escaping a deadly house fire, even what's going on in the world today, you know, when people have been extremely ill, they've been hospitalized, uh, been uh, in the ICU. You know, it's very well known that people can develop PTSD after being uh, hospitalized and in the ICU. So, you know, those are just some examples. Many, many traumas like that can contribute to PTSD. And in essence, it's natural after you survive a trauma, any one of us are going to feel shaken up, right? Any one of us is going to feel like we can't stop thinking about what happened. Maybe we're having nightmares. Maybe we're feeling jittery. But the reality is is the vast majority of us will heal naturally, right? We just need time and we will heal. 
PTSD becomes an issue when after four weeks, you know, four weeks is kind of this arbitrary cutoff. So something somewhere around the four weeks mark, those symptoms aren't going away. You, you know, your brain and your body has not habituated to what happened to you. And you're still having mm -hmm. memories of that trauma. Maybe you're having nightmares. You can't sleep. You're avoiding reminders of the trauma. It's had a, taken an impact on maybe the way you're working or how you're caring for your family. That's when you know that someone's entered that realm of PTSD. And, you know, PTSD is mm -hmm. famous for causing like the flashbacks and the nightmares and the exaggerated startle reaction. But what yeah. it's lesser known for is how it really dulls your emotional life. You know, it really strips your ability to experience joy and love. And a lot of times survivors, they're just in this chronic state of irritability or anger. And it really takes a toll on their loved ones and their ability to love and create and work and play. And, and those are the kind of more subtler symptoms that get missed, yeah. but are definitely symptoms of PTSD as well. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. So as a matter of neuroscience, I think we'll get to the emotions in a second, but really quickly, as a matter of neuroscience... Help us understand what's going on in terms of the functionality of the hippocampus, the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex. Like, help us understand what exactly is going on there. And then also, too, does PTSD also then manifest and live in the body as well? What we know about the neuroscience of PTSD is evolving every day, right? So, okay. you know, I can share what I feel is kind of the basic understanding right now with a caveat that, sure. you know, the, the brain is so incredibly complex, right? So the more we get to know about it, the more we understand how to study it, then this picture is going to evolve and change. But we do know that in people with PTSD, the hippocampus has been found to be smaller in people with PTSD. And the hippocampus is that part of our brains that process memory. Why it's smaller, we don't know whether they were born with a smaller hippocampus or whether it shrunk after exposure to trauma. We don't know that, but there is that correlation between having a smaller hippocampus for people with PTSD. We also know that the amygdala, the part of the brain that processes anger and fear, that's hyperactive in people who have PTSD, which basically means that they see danger sometimes where danger does not exist. And then when they have that response of fear or flight or anger, it's a very exaggerated response. It takes them a really long time to calm down. And we also know that the frontal lobe in people with PTSD is underactive. And the frontal lobe is kind of where we execute judgment, you know, where we plan our day. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine, you know, you're just not as in control of the way you're behaving because your amygdala is overfiring and then that part of your brain that kind of reins you in isn't working as well. So those are the three kind of areas that we know are implicated in PTSD. And then also in terms of neurotransmitters, you know, people who have PTSD have higher levels of adrenaline and noradrenaline mm -hmm. circulating in their bodies. And there's probably some serotonergic dysfunction too. The neurotransmitter serotonin is disrupted. And there's something going on with cortisol. We don't know exactly what the picture is, but the stress hormone cortisol yeah. is also disrupted in PTSD. So that's kind of the basic understanding. And I think what gets missed sometimes is when we think of PTSD, we tend to think of it as a psychological condition, a mind-brain condition. But of course, when you have that much disruption to bodily functions and your neurochemistry, that seeps into every single cell and bodily system. So, you know, we now know that PTSD is an independent risk factor for heart disease. Hmm. And we also know it's correlated with major health issues like obesity and cancer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this false dichotomy between mind and body, you know, it's not there. It's a whole system event, you know, a whole body yeah. event. And so we have to take that into account when we're trying to help people who are suffering with it. 
No, I think that's a really helpful explanation. Yeah, it's kind of astonishing that people still think that there's a disconnect between what happens in your mind and your brain, and then that that happens in your body as well. Yeah. Also, you bring up in your work, Dr. Jane, you talk about this idea of the golden hour, mm-hmm. right? So it's this window when a person's exposed to the trauma, and then when they actually develop symptoms of PTSD, mm-hmm. how long is that window? And then What's the point of medical intervention that can lead to an actual recovery? Help us understand what this idea is all about with the golden hour. Sure. So the wonderful thing about all the progress we've made in understanding PTSD in the last 20 years is that we've gotten as a community, as a scientific community, we've gotten really serious about we need to prevent it, right? We can't wait Mm -hmm. for people to be suffering for months and months and years and years because we know that the prognosis is not good if people wait a really long time before getting treatment. So we've really started to focus much more on early intervention and prevention. And the golden hours, as you Mm -hmm. said, refers to this window of opportunity between exposure to trauma and then the onset of PTSD. Because, you know, as I said earlier, you know, you take 100 people and they all survive the same trauma. Not all of them will develop PTSD, you know. Okay. So there is this window of opportunity between that exposure and the actual onset of PTSD We don't know how long that window of opportunity is. Some people say it's four hours. Some people say four days. We don't know. Mm -hmm. But there is this theory that, okay, well, what if we intervened right after the trauma? What if we were able to offer a medical intervention that could set the brain on a pathway to recovery? So help us understand what that medical intervention actually looks like. Is it actual medicine? Is it cannabis? Is it MDMA? What exactly are we talking about? So the studies that I'm familiar with, and to kind of stress, this is very experimental. This is not ready for prime time right now. But so, for example, there were some studies done using cortisol. You know, like I said earlier, a lot of ICU patients, when they actually wake up and recover from whatever they were in the ICU from, a lot of them develop PTSD. And there's been some studies showed that if they were given cortisol, that helped reduce the rates of people developing PTSD when they actually recovered from the devastating illness that had them in the ICU. Yeah. So some studies have looked at giving cortisol in that in the golden hour period. Others have looked at giving things like pain medications. So, you know, take the example of a combat veteran who survived a bomb blast. We know that the higher levels of pain is correlated with more PTSD. Oh, interesting. So, you know, there was this notion that, well, okay, if we aggressively treat the pain, you know, if someone survived a major trauma like that, like a physical trauma, then maybe that will reduce the odds of them developing PTSD in the subsequent weeks and months. And then even non-pharmacological interventions. So, for example, a lot of the trauma-focused psychotherapies that we know work for PTSD. Mm -hmm. Some researchers have packaged them in a format that you can give right there in the ER. So, you know, when people are coming in having survived, say, a sexual assault or having survived a major traffic accident, right there in the emergency room, give them a packaged form of that treatment so that they can understand what's happening when they have signs and symptoms. And then we give them coping strategies and ways to deal with the symptoms. So, we kind of nip the symptoms in the bud, you know, that is the philosophy there. So, It's an emerging field. I think a lot more is going to come out in the next few years, but it's not quite standard practice yet because we don't have enough data to support its effectiveness. But I think it's really a promising field and we really need to put a lot of effort there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, this intervention, is it simply called exposure therapy? So trauma-focused psychotherapies, prolonged exposure is the name of one of the psychotherapies that I was talking about. Okay. And then there's other trauma-focused therapies like EMDR and CPT, which, you know, maybe your listeners are familiar with. Those are kind of the gold standard mm-hmm. talk treatments for PTSD. 
is this the sort of thing that you're working on now with the COVID-19 pandemic that's taking over the world? Like, is this stuff that's making the headlines right now in terms of how nurses and doctors and ER doctors can kind of be better prepared, not only to take care of patients and those that are sick with COVID-19, but also essentially for themselves to also stay mentally aware and mentally healthy? Is this something that's part of your narrative? It's very interesting because, you know, so here's the thing with PTSD, And I think this is part of the reason we don't talk about it as much as we should. You know, when you're facing a crisis of survival, you know, like literally life and death. Yeah. It is very natural, obviously, for survival to take front and center stage, you know. And a lot of times the kind of emotional and psychological stuff gets pushed into the back. And, you know, of course, we have to do that as human beings. If you start processing things in real time, that's going to interfere with your ability to just ensure your survival. What I'm hoping we'll see, I'm hoping we'll learn from the stories of the past. So, for example, we have a lot of great data of of what happened to first responders after 9-11. Okay. We have really great data to show how severe PTSD was in first responders, who was most vulnerable to getting PTSD, and how long those symptoms lasted if people did not get help. So what I'm hoping will happen is when the time is right, we'll be more open to having these conversations about the psychological aftermath of dealing with trauma, you know, this this pandemic head on. And I think that's huge in of itself. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times, as you probably know, you can imagine in years gone by and cultures gone by, we just don't talk about it. There's a silence, you know, spiral of silence that kind of shrouds a lot of this stuff. And yeah. it's really complicated. You know, people have a lot of issues. They have a lot of survivor guilt. They have a lot of barriers to them talking about mental health distress. I like to think we're kind of on the cusp of becoming this trauma-conscious society where at least we'll be able to have that conversation because the advantage of having that conversation is then we can do something about it, right? Name it so you can tame it. That's right. My feeling is is right now is not the right time for that to be foremost, but I, I like to think when the time is right, people are going to be more open to that and there's more we can do to help those people who served on the front lines, you know, heal so that they don't have to kind of live with the invisible wounds, you know, even though they might have survived the actual pandemic physically, that they don't have to live with the invisible wounds. Yeah, it's just such a curious time right now. I mean, this is happening in the wake of the United States being involved in almost 20 years of war in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. and the war in Iraq. And so we're dealing with PTSD from those wars. And what's astonishing about that Dr. Jane, is that more veterans have died in the United States as a result of suicide than Mm -hmm. actually dying in combat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have to ask you, what exactly is the relationship with PTSD and suicide? So anybody who lives with PTSD lives with an elevated rate of suicide. So that we know, you know, the same way if you have heart disease, there's more chance you're going to die of a heart attack. So that's the kind of way I think about it. You just live with that constantly elevated rate of suicide. And that goes for any mental illness, actually. The vast majority of mental health disorders carry with them this elevated risk of suicide. Directly, the relationship between PTSD and suicide, it's really tricky because there has been some really massive studies, you know, these kind of big data sets that have studied millions of military personnel And they've looked for this correlation, you know, this kind of war is hell correlation that, of course, you went to war, of course, you're going to get PTSD, and of course, that's going to contribute to suicide. But it's easier said than done. That picture is not always as we might expect it to be, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's hard. I think what we know for sure is that the best way to prevent PTSD 
is helping people access high quality mental health treatment for the condition that they have. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we still have a massive access problem across all of the United States with every population, but also in the in the veteran population. So for as an example, a lot of um, veterans have never seen a mental health professional. They've never gotten care through the VA, mm-hmm. even though they were most likely suffering and living with a mental health disorder. So there's a big access issue. And I think that's a complicated story. A lot of that is to do with intrinsic barriers, things like stigma or difficulty in accepting mental health symptoms. There's also very real extrinsic barriers too. You know, there's a lot of barriers in accessing high quality mental health care, especially if you are socioeconomically disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. So it's a really big, complicated puzzle to try and figure out Um But yeah, when you live with a mental health disorder like PTSD, you live every day with an elevated risk of death by suicide. Now, let me ask you a question. As a person who sees the world through an anthropological lens, I have to ask, to what extent does American culture have an influence on people that come from war back to American society? How much of an impact does it have on them in terms of feeling alienated and not coming back to a close-knit society where there is a sense of collectivism, where is there, there is a sense of people will take care of me. Mm-hmm. Is there any semblance of truth to that, Dr. Jane? So I think we learned uh, huge lessons from the experience of Vietnam War veterans. So there was a big body of data, a kind of very well-known landmark study that followed Vietnam veterans for years. I think it was even decades. And that study was able to document the negative impact of a harsh homecoming, you know? Yeah. So as you know, historically, Vietnam veterans were often not welcomed back and oftentimes they were blamed or rejected or alienated because the war was so hugely unpopular. Right. And we know that that kind of rejection, that blaming had a devastating impact on the psychological and emotional well-being of those veterans. So I feel like we have learned with these current conflicts and how to respond to returnees. Now, I think we've learned a lot of invaluable lessons. Like, is it always perfect? Could we do better? Yeah, absolutely. But we've learned so much from the Vietnam mm-hmm. War. And I think not only organizationally and policy-wise, but I think even in from a general public perspective, I feel like people are a lot more sensitive to this issue, generally. Your work also revolves around this idea, and you talk about this idea of the Americanization of suffering. Mm-hmm. Can you unpack what that means in the context of PTSD? Is it something that's specific to the United States, and how does it compare to other regions and other countries around the world? So this is really curious, and I don't think we know the truth yet, but there is this mm-hmm. kind of theory percolating in the world that somehow PTSD is almost like an American culture-bound phenomenon. And part of that is rooted in data that was done with the World Health Organization. I think around the year 2000, the WHO did a lot of mental health surveys across all countries, India, China, Nigeria, you name it. There was thousands and thousands of surveys that went out to try and document rates of mental illness in those populations in lower and middle income countries, because that data was missing. In high income countries, we have 
a good sense of what the prevalence rates of, you know, PTSD and depression and anxiety are. But we didn't have that data for those lower and middle income countries. So the WHO tried to rectify that by replicating these massive studies to try and get that data. Mm-hmm. And the real mystery is that for some reason, a lot of these countries reported a PTSD rate of zero or close to zero. Is there not actual language surrounding this idea and this concept of PTSD? Is that what it is? What, what exactly is the issue? That's the thing. We don't know the issue. It was an absolute mystery. You know, so if you think about it in the United States, the prevalence rate of PTSD is like 7 8%. Mm. So how on earth could it be 0% in, you know, like China or Nigeria? And what's the point of a diagnosis that doesn't have a worldwide utility, right? And so then that's when this theory started happening that somehow PTSD is just like an American phenomenon or a Western phenomenon. And some people started saying, oh, well, you know, people in low middle income countries, they have this paradoxical resiliency, you know, they face trauma the same amount as Americans do, maybe even more. Mm. But because they have a different philosophy or a different cultural attitude towards trauma, they don't develop PTSD. Right. That was one theory. How interesting that they have a paradoxical resiliency. Okay. how interesting. Yeah. Another theory is that you've got to take into account cultural expressions of PTSD, right? So maybe the symptoms that you see in a Western population in a high-income country, maybe PTSD expresses itself differently in different countries, and we weren't capturing that in the study because we were kind of imposing a Western construct. So that could be another theory, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. But you know what? I have a big problem (laughs) with these theories. I have a big problem with this notion that these low middle income countries don't have PTSD. And I'll tell you why. My biggest problem is this. A lot of times in low and middle income countries, marginalized populations do not have a voice. Right. 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 I'll give you an example. Up until very recently, it was illegal to be homosexual in India. So you tell me if you're a homosexual living in these countries and you face a hate crime for that, and you are brutalized or you are traumatized, are you really going to say what happened? <laughs> are you really going to admit what happened to a researcher? You know, if you face the risk of prosecution and persecution, you're not, right? Right. So this is a big problem that I have with that data is that I, unfortunately, I think because of issues with human rights and issues with protection of marginalized or threatened groups, I don't think people are free to speak freely. And until you know people are free to report freely and speak freely, you're not going to get a good sense of trauma and trauma symptoms, you know? So that's why I have a big problem with the data. Personally, I don't know the answer, but that is an argument that is put out there. I'm sure you have perspective on this in your work as a combat interpreter in Afghanistan, but To me, as a clinician who spent 20 years taking care of human beings, to me, in my mind, human beings were essentially the same. You know, when we face loss, when we face trauma, we have a universal response to that, Mm -hmm. that transcends religion and ethnicity and nationality. And for me to think that somehow, you know, people in different countries aren't experiencing psychological suffering as a, as a response to trauma, it, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm not convinced. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. And, you know, that leads me to ask this question since you've been doing this kind of work for a while now, right, Dr. Jane? Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, working in the mental health space, diagnosing people who have PTSD and other mental illnesses, what is the transformational effect that that has on you 
every single day? Like, how is it that you're able to cope with this? Because, I mean, studies say that the burn rate with physicians now is super high. And so yeah. those that work in the, in the health space go into their offices and their hospitals every single day, but it takes a toll on you. So how is it that you're able to kind of cope? How do you deal with it? Like, how do you mentally process your life? So there's a very real phenomenon called vicarious traumatization, you know, where healthcare workers who work with a lot of traumatized populations, whether it be combat soldiers, whether it be low-income women, whether it be youth who are raised in high-crime inner-city areas, you know, they can develop symptoms kind of like PTSD just from listening to those stories all the time and being around people all the time and kind of absorbing that, if you will. Yeah. Um, So there is a very well-documented phenomenon So I really believe in this, you know, name it so you can tame it philosophy. It's really helpful for me to know that, you know, when I'm having a bad day or when I'm feeling overloaded, just knowing that this is a thing and giving it a name really helps rather than that kind of, you know, tough it out, what's wrong with you type attitude that has permeated kind of healthcare professional culture for for decades. It's not really that helpful. You know, white knuckling through it isn't helpful. I Mm -hmm. think recognize your own limitations, recognizing your own boundaries, recognizing when you need to kind of step away and take a breath and taking care of yourself. Right. uh, Self-care are hugely important if you want to be able to have a career that spans, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Right, right. You know, this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. So I think meticulous attention to self-care. For me, writing is extremely therapeutic. Writing Mm -hmm. the book, The Unspeakable Mind, was extremely therapeutic. Mm -hmm. There's something about leaving the words on the page, leaving the experiences on the page that was really cathartic and really valuable to me. And, you know, even having conversations like this today with yourself, you know, accomplishing my mission of kind of reaching a wider audience so that we can all be curious so that we can all understand about PTSD it's it's really rewarding it makes it feel worth it and I think feeling like what you're trying to do has value and that it makes a difference is hugely rejuvenating I have to ask you Dr. Jane in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic what is a great way for people who are now living in quarantine to kind of take care of themselves. What is some some basic advice and or guidance that you could give listeners going forward? Because we don't know when this is going to end, right? So yeah. what are some things that people could implement now to essentially maintain a sense of sanity? Sure. So the first thing is we have to accept the situation for what it is, right? Mm-hmm. It is stressful. It is anxiety provoking. A lot of us have had our lives totally disrupted in ways small and large, you know? So I think acceptance and, and anticipating that you're going to feel this way again is kind of huge, you know? And don't deny that feeling. Don't fight it. We don't want to be white knuckling our way through the weeks and months. Just accept that you're going to be have limitations, you're not going to be your best self maybe in the coming weeks, and just be a little bit kinder to yourself. Maybe you can't hold yourself up to the standards that you normally do. Yeah. So I think acceptance is huge, but at the same time, you can't afford to be passive or fatalistic, right? right. It's a very fine line. You want to have acceptance, but at the same time, you've got to be proactive, right? You've got to keep yourself healthy. You've got to keep the people you love healthy as much as possible. You've got to start doing contingency planning for if you get sick or mm-hmm. if you're going to face economic challenges. Challenges. You know, you want to make sure you have adequate supplies at home so you can shelter in place. So the very fine line between acceptance and being proactive. Mm-hmm. And I think to walk that fine line successfully, having an adaptive mindset is really helpful. You know, accept that change is the only constant. You've got to be really nimble and dynamic in your mindset. 
which is hard if you're kind of used to a certain rigidity in the way you go about your life or a certain expectation of how you go about your life. So I think adapting is key. It's really helpful to keep structure and routine in your life wherever you can. Mm -hmm. You know, I think yeah. the vast majority of us are still fortunate enough that we can keep some structure and routine, you know, whether it's just you enjoying that morning cup of coffee or taking the dog for a walk. Like some of these little habits can be so anchoring when you're mm -hmm. facing chaos. And then I think we have to find healthy ways of coping with stress. The problem is a lot of people have ways of coping with stress, but they're not necessarily that healthy. <laughs> so doubling down on the healthy ways of coping with stress, right, you know, right. and, and it's unique for everybody, right? But whatever it is, whether it's exercise or reading or meditation or, or your, whatever it, your thing is, find out what it is, your healthy ways, and then double down on those. Those are just some of the thoughts that come to mind. No, I love what you said about adaptability. I think there was a Harvard study that essentially captured the essence of the happiest people in the world. And it came down to relationships and having a sense of adaptability because you never know what's going to come down the pike, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and obviously, in this age of social distancing and the kind of self-isolation and the quarantining, those social networks get challenged, right? Right. And so, again, being proactive about your social networks, because you're not going to have those organic social networks that you're probably used to having, you know? And so, I think being proactive and setting up time to talk with people who you love, people who are, are good for you, you know, friends, family, work colleagues or whatever – steadily keeping that in your life so you don't feel socially isolated because like you said that social network does so much to promote our resiliency when we're faced with stress or trauma i completely agree so dr jane i like to kind of wrap up these conversations by asking one big question of my guests what is your message for the world that we have to become a trauma conscious society because we're not and by becoming a trauma conscious society that means everybody will do their bit to help trauma sufferers and PTSD sufferers around the world just by educating yourself and elevating your awareness of trauma and how it's a part of so many millions and millions of people all over the planet. Dr. Jane, thank you so much for your time. I'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.